Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town, toddling town, Chicago, Chicago, I'll show you around. The corner was our magic, our music, our politics. Fires raised as tribal dances and war cries broke out of different quarters. Power to the people. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Sunny Side Podcast. My name is Jizri Dibasa. And I'm the Hezman you. We are grateful that you are here today with us. We are in the celebratory mood of the season of Kwanzaa. We have a special episode. Uh, we're going to deviate a little bit from our normal format where we have someone uh, doing great things in the uh, Chicagoland community. And we wanted to take a moment in time to look at the Kwanzaa uh, celebration. Uh, this is a celebration that was started around 19, sorry, 1966, and it's something that has been taking off more so in the um, African American community. So much um, has been lost uh, from our cultural standpoint as far as celebrations and holidays. What are we doing as a collective to reconnect ourselves to our, our true authentic roots and culture? We went on uh, a Kwanzaa tour, if you will. So we've been around the Chicagoland area. We met a lot of great, interesting people, had some interviews, attended some wonderful events. Um, and we were very pleased about that. And we'll hopefully be able to share some of that with you all. Kwanzaa is not a black Christmas, which a lot of people try to make it a black Christmas, but it starts on the 26th, so as they alternative to Christmas. It's important to me because of the Nguzu Saba, the seven principles, and the other principles are supposed Evolving your life and your family every day. That's why it's important to me the seven principles of it. And the coming together to remind ourselves of those seven principles. But the Kwanzaa principles and where they came from, you know, there's a book called Fundamental African Centered Thought uh, by my brother Ra. What's Ra's full name, but he'll get me. But, but just look up fact, Fundamental African Centered Thought. But there's a good chapter in there where he talks about the origins of Kwanzaa and the principles coming from the Garvey movement. Uh, working with some brothers and sisters out of San Diego and Southern California, and then uh, how Brother Karinga uh, put the, put them together. Or they all put them together, but how he formed a holiday and, uh, since 1966, I believe it was 66. And the principles are right on. Mm -hmm. The principles is what we need to deal with, not just now, but you know, just throughout the year. Those principles, the principles which really need to be followed all the time. But I think it's it's important that we do uh, recognize Kwanzaa and. Uh, celebrate and again look at these principles not just the end of the year but uh, throughout the year. Our Baba Kwesi had had a Kwesi Ron Harris. He put together some serious work with having different parts of the year. Uh, the uh, uh, with each 
principal, each Mbuzu uh, Saba principal, he had different parts of the year that we would follow the principles. So he put that together, so I'm sure it's still out there. So I wish we could get a hold of that and make that into some documentation. I think we just need to, again, get more people involved in the celebration of Kwanzaa. I was really uh, kind of excited about the fact that there were so many Kwanzaa events happening, not just here in Chicago, but all around the country. You know, with social media, you see where they're going on. You see them everywhere from, it's everywhere. They're all over the place, New York, Detroit, uh, small cities, Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know, LA, everywhere they're having Kwanzaa programs and celebrations, but we need to do it again, needed to do it all the year round, recognize these principles and work these principles because our, our conditions right now are such that it's so necessary. Um, to my knowledge, it is a, uh, a holiday for African peoples. Uh, it's a holiday that is not generally known. Uh, I, I certainly don't know too much about it, but. That's, that's what I can say. I think it's very important. Uh, it's events like these that gives a platform for uh, people who, like, like myself, sometimes is not quite informed, get a better opportunity to learn a little bit more. Oh, I've been attending for at least 10 plus 15, probably about 15 years now. I like to give out gifts and talk about each of the various days and really explain why this is very important and how we not only need to practice it during the time of Kwanzaa, but we need to practice it all throughout the year. And I come out to these kind of events because they're very important to elevate the consciousness of the neighborhood and the community. Kwanzaa was created as an African, African-American holiday that we use to reintroduce African people to them African selves, right? Uh, because a lot of times there's a lot of people that come out and they're curious about Kwanzaa, what it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so as African people, as Af African educators, as African redemptionists, right? Those that's charged with redeeming the race, we have the responsibility and doing Kwanzaa an opportunity to inform and share with people what it is to be African, what it means to be African, and you know, um, in the ways that we understand it, right, uh, and whatnot. And then because it's a wide or a broad village of black people that come together, African people that come together, if you are looking for information, you get to find it in a lot of different ways, and so you don't have to be pinned to any particular type of uh, religious system or, you know what I'm saying, a perspective and things of that nature, it's all here. And so uh, for me, again, Kwanzaa is just an opportunity to be introduced to our African selves through whoever perspective it is that you find yourself interacting with during this time. I have an expression that says that if you are having a black experience in the absence of an African reality, you're cheating yourself of more than half of what you have to experience, what, what, what there is to offer. And so it's vitally important that we connect with who we are as an African people because again, outside of that, you know what I'm saying? We're not really being our authentic and true full selves. You know what I'm saying? Ujjayi everyone, uh, uh, we are happy to, we are pleased to have two of our international members of Kebta, um, Menkase Pernepsati in Alberta, Calgary, and Zawaji Merutepiau in Nairobi, Kenya. Are you in the city of Nairobi? 
Uh, yes, I am, uh, Hatini. I'm actually just outside. I'm at the outskirts. So I'm in a place called Ngong Hills, but yeah, close enough. We wanted to talk about really the cultural roots of Kwanzaa, even though we know that Kwanzaa was founded in the 60s by a black nationalist named uh, Mulana Karenga here in uh, California. Um, we wanted to talk about what symbols, what language he used to found it. Um, first off, do you do you all are you all familiar with Kwanzaa? Is it is it celebrated where you are in Canada and in Kenya? Yes, uh, here in uh, in Alberta, Canada, uh, there's a mention of it. You know, in the office when they say, you know, they start off with Happy Holidays and then they say, you know, Happy and Merry Christmas and they say a Happy Kwanzaa. Mm -hmm. That's essentially as far as it goes. Yes. And then just, it, just, the, just the PC greeting. You say, exactly. yeah, happy Hanukkah in there. You have to put happy Kwanzaa in there. Make sure exactly. you touch all places. Nobody feels left out. Oh, yeah. That's part of the diversity and inclusion policies that are uh, instituted in the company. So it's uh -huh. something that they have to say. Yeah. Yeah. But uh -huh. other than that, that's it. Okay. Yes. Here in, in Kenya, it's really not um, familiar. Um, nobody really knows about it apart from maybe if you come across it from the, maybe you would call it the cultural appropriation and the fascination that we have with everything that happens in the, over in Mano in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the fascination would really come from mainly the fact that we have uh, our brothers and sisters over that side of the pond speaking or having a, um, a festival that uses our national language. Uh, but beyond that, it is really not familiar to the general populace over here. So not, not really, no. Mm -hmm. Those of us who like to investigate behind things, when we find out about Kwanzaa, we find out that it was started by an African-American or African born in America, however you want to put it. But interestingly, he didn't reach for a language or cultural principles in from a language group coming from the western coast of Africa where a lot of the people that were brought to the west are really coming from were taken from but instead he crossed the continent to go to east africa kenya tanzania places where the national language is is excuse me is swahili um so it is interesting and it is you know it brings up a question for a lot of people. I don't know, brought up the question for me. I can't say a lot of people, but that question has been there. And his response was that he was really trying to not look for a place just from where the families that were brought here are coming from, but instead look for one that would really represent the Pan-Africanism or the unification mm -hmm the equality of all of the tribes on the continent. So it's interesting that he chose Swahili in that. And that's a little bit of what we wanted to bring you guys on to talk about just some more um, of a perspective from those who grew up, because even though Menkasev, I didn't mention that earlier, even though Menkasev is in Calgary now, he's originally from Kenya and grew up in Kenya as well. And so they both grew up you know, as this being their national language, learning it in school and and all of that. So mm -hmm. 
can you speak anything about that experience? What Swahili really meant to you as a child growing up in Kenya? Is it related to your own uh, tribal language, indigenous language, or when did you meet it and do you speak it? Ah, yes, I do. I do. I have to. Yes, so like with uh, Swahili, you know, being born into the country and being born into the culture, I first encountered it uh, in school, you know, in grade one. And that was a subject that was taught to us from, you know, grade one until grade 12, it was standard one until form four. And from there also you find that it is also spoken outside of school, which really helped to reinforce the language. But then that is just if you're growing up within the city. So if you're in the village, you'd find it's mainly inside the school, but then once you leave, you know, the classroom environment, you find it's the tribal language that dominates the area that actually um, the language is spoken. But then you find that, uh, you know, with it being something that, you know, the government really promoted, you find there was a newspaper in Swahili, there were radio programs in Swahili. So it was out there also in the airwaves. So that helped really reinforce the language. Mm -hmm. But then even when it came to the discussion of its origins, uh, they were barely touched on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, knowing that it is a, you know, a combination language with Arabic and some of the coastal languages, and from that, there is where that came from. Uh, that is what was explained to us that was the origin. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the interesting part is its selection as a national language between the countries of East Africa. Right. There is where the, uh, the, the the meat of the uh, of the matter is, and what was the principle and agenda and purpose behind all of that is is an interesting one. Yeah, mm. leave it over to my my good man, Senzuaji, <laughs> to to continue from there. <laughs> yeah, do I? Yeah, for uh, for me, similar story to um, Hatani Mankaseb. We we grow up speaking the language in the households. But my, my story is slightly different because, yes, uh, I, I do speak Swahili. Um, most of us do uh, because it is the national language. Uh, but my educational um, journey was slightly different because I went over into the British educational system when I was relatively young. Mm -hmm. But I did study it. Um, incidentally, myself and Hatani Menkeseb did actually go to the same primary school. Okay. And uh, Hatani Menkeseb was a classmate of my elder sister and mm -hmm. a friend of my older brother. So we, it is taught in the, in the national um, curriculum. Um, but for me, once I hopped over to the British educational system, because I wasn't doing too well in the normal, uh, our, our government, uh, what they call the 844 system, which is eight okay. years of primary, four years of secondary, and four years of ter uh, further tertiary, uh, tertiary education. Mm -hmm. um, I lost contact with the learning of Swahili from oh. a relatively young age because I went when I was nine years old to a British education system. Um, but then we still spoke it at home. And so it's, you know, it, it is widely spoken. And uh, just as uh, Hatani Menkaseb said, it is, you know, the national language of the country and the surrounding countries uh, around us, especially in Uganda and Tanzania. Uh, mm -hmm. But the interesting anecdote and side fact with uh, Swahili, especially in uh, Uganda is that it is more 
shall we say, negatively looked upon because it was seen as the language of um, the army. And mm. so Swahili is more widely spoken in Kenya and Tanzania than it is in Uganda. Mm. But the army is the one that used the Swahili language in Uganda, uh, where they tend to speak more of their uh, indigenous languages. Yeah. Um, so yes, I am fluent in, in, in Swahili. And uh, so I always uh, reconnected with it once I went, uh, I came back from my further studies uh, from London. Um, so that's how we communicate at home in the household as well as in English. Is that the is that the indigenous language of your family, or you're just communicating it, communicating in it in within the household because it's the national language? Is that the language uh, yeah. they have in your village? A good question. Yeah. So we, we tend to in in personally in our households we it's we interchange between uh, Swahili and English. Okay. Um, my indigenous tribal language is something called Ekehusi. Um, which also has it ro its roots in uh, the Bantu languages, just like Swahili ha also has its roots in uh, the Bantu languages. Mm -hmm. So there are some words that are very interchangeable and uh, can be understood by uh, indigenous tribal language of Ekegusi uh -huh. and Swahili as well. So, uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, Menkase, what, just for our listeners, what is your uh, uh, indigenous language? Oh, I uh, thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> so mine is uh, is Gikoyo, and uh, the Gikoyo people are mainly found on one one of the sl uh, slopes of Mount Kenya. Uh -huh. So we are mainly the most populous tribe in Kenya. So we are you know about fifteen to twenty percent of the country, mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. we mainly concentrated around the mountain. So interestingly mm -hmm. enough, like you know, in, in Kenya, you pick off the street normally does three languages. You find they do English because of the you know, colonial educational system. Mm -hmm. And then you find they do Swahili's in there uh, based on it being a national language. And then they have we have our tribal language, which is Gikoyo. Uh, so everyone has their own little tribal language. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say little, but they're many. Yeah. Yes. So you'd find, yeah. like for me, on a single day, I would speak all three. So like mm -hmm. uh, if I speak to my mom, and the elder people in my household, we are speaking purely in Gikoyo. And then, you know, people who are, you know, around me, we switch between English and, and Swahili. But then here in Calgary, when me and my wife want to say something that we don't want the children to hear, <laughs> we speak in Gikoyo. But then uh -huh. they are catching on. So mm -hmm. we, we are going to have to figure out our language to, <laughs> to, to discuss what we are going, how we are going to reprimand them. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, up. <laughs> you guys trying to get things past those children in your house? Uh, well, good luck. I don't know what you, <laughs> what you think you're doing. <laughs> How many tribal languages would you estimate there are in your region in Kenya? Hey, we are maybe yeah. we we are about we over fifty million growing every second, and we are um, about 40, 43, 44. Now those are the official documented ones. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Officially documented, but they are way, way, way more than those. Yeah. yeah. And so Swahili is not one of those, right? I mean, when we're talking about indigenous languages to Kenya, mm -hmm. it's not an indigenous language to Kenya, right? But it's related to the Bantu language group. 
Yes, interestingly enough, is you will not go and pick a tribe and say these these are the Swahilis. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah right. There's there's nothing like that. Yeah. Right. And so um, I know, you know, for our listeners who maybe have been listening and we were talking about Kwanzaa and now we're just talking about Swahili, I want to make it clear because language is where culture resides. And when we're talking about now bringing a cultural practice to a people and you, we don't look at what language is it being brought in, then we can't really understand the culture that it's bringing. And so now to speak with some people who grew up with the language and therefore saw the language in its cultural context, then that's going to give us a deeper insight into the culture that Kwanzaa is bringing or at least trying to bring. Um, so I want to go there next. I do want to come back to some of the thing, you know, some of what Menka said was implying about how did it become the national language? We will swing back around to that. But before we get there, the word Kwanzaa itself, we're told in the West is a Swahili word. Are you all familiar with that word before hearing about it? And what does it mean? Before hearing about the holiday and what does that word mean? Uh, yes, yes, we're very familiar with it. Um, Kwanzaa uh, literally translates to first or the first. So mm -hmm. yes, it is a commonly used term and uh, everybody in Kenya, if you came over here and said Kwanzaa in any part of East Africa, uh -huh. uh, they'd be very aware of it, so yes. You're just gonna call up the concept of first of something, not a ceremony, cultural ceremony. Yes, it, it, it would be more in relation to just the first of anything. But so if right. you just came up and said Kwanzaa, mm -hmm. um, you know, people would probably give you some very inquisitive looks to think, you mm -hmm. know, Kwanzaa, you know, because it, it would be like me coming to you, Herpu, and saying, uh, first, yes. you know, so I would, you know, you'd obviously be waiting for me to expound on whatever it is that I was saying. So, but the word itself, mm -hmm. it, it's there, but it doesn't have any kind of cultural connotations. It uh -huh. just literally translates to uh, the first. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm so happy that we're having this conversation because in the educational system that we're all part of uh, as members of KEPTA, we really go into the notion of etymology all the time. It's something that's emphasized time and time again, like having the understanding of what you're saying, having an understanding the history of and the context of what you're saying. And I never even gave that concept uh, that true investigation that that is necessary and needed mm -hmm. and to hear that the etymology of it is just first it, it is just something that would be odd but your ear is just listening for what comes what next comes first of what first mm -hmm. of what's the second or something to that effect mm -hmm. yes good point and maybe even more pertinent to this particular situation is that language and etymology is so important because the way we use language, the way we understand language, the languages we have to try to interface with other people and the world is through is the context through which we get to experience the world. We get to see the world. A lot of people don't think about the fact that there's not much you think about even inside your mind that you don't have a word for. Mm -hmm. So language is really confining to us. Even though it gives us a lot, it also confines us. Um, and in the way that it confines us or propels us or enhances us, language technically 
can build our brains or it can weaken our brains. And a lot of people who grew up speaking English first know how difficult it is to get out of the, the cage of English and learn other languages. Where a lot of people who grew up with an indigenous language, a national language, and then English, it'll be much easier to pick up language because the brain is already trained to be loose. It's not trained to be encaged by this colonial language that's very hard and you know rigid. Uh, and it's Degenerative. Making the brain more at peace with not making sense, with saying things like first. But the the truth is, for those who have looked looked upon the history of Kwanzaa, it's referred to as Kwanzaa, which is just the word first, but it's implying or it's pointing to the ceremony of the first uh, harvest, harvest or the first you know fruits of the harvest. Um, which is also interesting to any thinking person because it's, of we're in winter <laughs> and in Chicago, like nothing, you're not going to get any first harvest at all or any first fruit unless you go to the grocery store. And I don't know if that's what we're talking <laughs> about. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. But Kwanzaa means much more than just the first fruits of harvest. And um, for us growing up in city life, not growing up, farming, not growing up, understanding that a people's livelihood depends on, you know, how um, how the earth is really given to them or keeping from them, how the farm is producing or not producing. It doesn't mean much to us that first fruits doesn't have any uh, true context, true relevance here. Um, because we overlooked that. What, when do we? We don't even know when the first fruits come because they're always there at Whole Foods. So what does it matter? So what Kwanzaa really brings every year, what it's what really is the value of it for the community? It seems is the notion of these seven principles that Kwanzaa represents, and those seven principles are called the Nguzo Nguzo Saba, I believe. I could be saying that wrong. Does that um? Does that sound familiar in Swahili? Well, Nguzo, uh, Nguzo Saba, yes, it sounds it's, it's familiar, but the pronunciation is the one that draws laughs from me, you know, so it's Yeah, so the, the word Nguzo, yes, Nguzo and Saba, those are two familiar words in, in Swahili. And what will they mean in, in Swahili and what will be the cultural understanding? So in fact, even once you come and tell somebody Nguzo Saba, you know, the word Nguzo is not something that is commonly spoken of in Swahili. So they might be first, hey, let me you know, consult the Kamusi, which is a dictionary. And then they would see what Nguzo means. or Everybody knows what Saba means. Mm. So then they would ask you, oh, so what are these, uh, you know, Nguzo Saba, what are these seven principles that you're talking about? Mm-hmm. And from there, that would be a conversation driver. I see. And that's actually the conversation we want to get into. The first day of Kwanzaa on the 26th of December and seven days with the principle each day being highlighted, being addressed, being meditated on, being celebrated um, and goes for the next seven days. And the first day is Umoja, which means we're told means unity. Seven principles that we could uh, live around, not just practice, right? But we need to perfect and, and engage every day in our lives. 
And so uh, our, our call for uh, unity, umoja, is, is, is a strong requirement because many hands make light work. And you know, as many of us need to be about that work. Today is about unity. Well, I think like knowledge is very key. I think we need to be knowledgeable of our history, of who we are, where we've come from. And once we have a, a greater understanding of ourselves, then we will do better and treat each other like we need to treat each other. Yeah, working together, uh, sharing common interests, sharing common themes, common problems as well that uh, everyone faces. Um, most importantly, working together on those problems and whatnot, but just, just being together. And I think we need to try to, as a people, acquire more unity, community-wise, build unity in our economic structure, uh, perhaps even in the culture and in the spirituality, if you would. We seem to be divided. Uh, as a people across all these these borders. So if we could just unite for a common cause, which is uh, not just survival, but the improvement for our situation as a people, I dare to say in this, in this foreign land. Can you speak to to that concept and the and the cultural understanding behind that word in the Swahili language. Yes. So yes, umoja um, would probably be like within the context of uh, talking about principles. Uh, umoja would means unity, and uh, within umoja you have the term moja, which is the number one in uh, Swahili or Kiswahili, mm. and uh, so. Even within the context of uh, Kenyan society, uh, you, found, you find that umoja is something, and it's a term that is often and commonly used by our politicians, you know, to uh, engender the sense of unity or oneness. Mm -hmm. So within that context uh, of, you know, trying to engender the, the notion of unity or oneness or togetherness, it's a term that is often used and uh, it would be very familiar if you came to anybody and said, ah, umoja. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, talking about unity. So yes, very commonly used. Uh, the second uh, day, if, if I could, sorry, sorry to interject, if I could just add, um, just for um, the purpose of, of clarification for future questions, mm -hmm. whenever you have the prefix u in yes. Swahili, so you have umoja and uh, ubuntu, it's always mm -hmm. uh, signifies a unity. Okay. So that's you get utu or ubuntu or umoja. So whenever you have any of these principles with the, the prefix U in front of them, uh, it usually signifies the oneness. Okay, okay, I see. The second day is Kujichagalia. Kujichagalia. And that's the one that, you know, usually is the, the funnest to say for all of us we're English tongues in the West. Or and the funnest, <laughs> the funnest to hear is Kuji Chagalia. Um, and the, the definition we're given here is, or the translation we're given here is self-determination. Uh, first of all, Paragami. Kuji My better half, my queen, Anita, and her business partner, Nikisha, created a chain of daycare centers called Tetesa Village and a school called Village Leadership Academy. Right now, on an annual basis, they service about 800 young people. This, wow. is, not, this is not a daycare, somebody's house. Okay, okay. 
Yes, thank you. So we turned about 800 young people, six weeks, all the way up to eighth grade. Anybody remember Hales Franciscan High School? Yeah. Over down, just down the street over here on Cottage Road and 50th. They just purchased that building. And those leadership academy will be housed there starting in the fall. When we first started school, we imagined what kind of adults did we need in our community? What type of leaders did we want to take us to the next level? And so what we instilled in them is rooted in love because we love our children, but also high quality, yeah. high expectation. Yeah. We, it's not okay to just be mediocre. Yeah. It's not okay to just coast alone. No, high quality, high expectation, and then training them into what it means to do and be a community leader. So what are the root causes we see in the community? Who, are, who is doing some good work? What are the things that we're going to do to, 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 um, to mitigate some issues in our community and then evaluate that process. I'm really, really happy to see this going on. There's some revolutionary growth stuff going on now that never gone on in my lifetime in terms of uh, uh, what uh, Captain Ibrahim Traore of uh, Burkina Faso is doing as well as the presidents of Mali and Nigeria. Uh, they are turning this whole thing up. They turned this colonial thing up on its head. They have decided to stop selling gold to the West at below market prices. They're gonna start processing their own gold and diamonds and other things. Well, and, and then sell them the finished product instead of the raw material. Um, uh, Nigeria has decided to not allow the gas to, uh, for this pipeline to go through his country, going to France to help warm Europe up because of all the things that they've been doing. And so I'm very, very happy to see uh, Mali, Nigeria, and uh, uh, Burkina Faso are banding together, they formed a mutual defense agreement. Uh, there's been some other discussions about further collaborations between them. And this is the kind of thing that needs to happen. These are the kind of real athletes that we need to have. His brother, Burkina Faso now, is sounding a lot like one of his predecessors, Thomas Sankara. That's right. He was president of Burkina Faso. He, in fact, was talking about Kuchichagali. Burkina Faso used to be called Upper Volta. And he, when he came into power through a military coup, he said, we need to change our mindset about who we are. So he changed the name of the country to Burkina Faso, the land of upright people. He said, we are upright people, and we can do for ourselves, we will produce for ourselves, we will name ourselves. And that's what he did. He named the country, the people of Burkina Faso were called the Burkina Bay, upright people. We gotta be clear that this is a global community now. We're no longer, we can't no longer say that we don't just work on our block, in our community, our state, our cult country. We have to look at the whole piece. And we wanna add that, Self-determination is not just about external factors, it's about like uh, food, clothing, and su supplies that you need for your survival physically. But it's also about you inside yourself, where you are, I mean, who you are and what makes you you. And for a long time, we've been neglecting what makes us us. Mm. And we, we, we talk about Africa a lot in our communities, um, but I don't see us going and making sure to be there and making sure to raise our children there, making sure to build a general, genuine connection with our with our people overall, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, face to face, year by year, bridge by bridge, because if, if, uh, if not, you know, and I'm not saying it needs to be everybody, but I think we need to be more conscious about making that happen. You know, we have some people who are repatriates, and I think that it's just important for us to have more of that as we, uh, raise the next generations that we making sure that they get to 
spend as much time as possible back home because you see how fast the culture is changing and values are changing where we are and it's it's uh it's not for the best it's not for us it's not it's not us putting our mark on what we want our want this future to be and you you know uh we can be we can try to insulate our communities as much as we want to our children with uh homeschooling which is good um, that's what that's what we were doing but at some level you know we it, outside has always been a creep in yeah and, and they not if they not don't have something strong enough to hold on to or some uh some experience somewhere else of a different reality of how to go about things uh i think it's easy for for them to give up so you know uh we need to be there uh we we can't just be here in Kwanzaa or Black History Month, you know what I mean? Like we, we need to be, you know, Africa 365. And we can only do that if we're there. Um, as much as, you know, it can't be everybody, but at least some of us can be there, you know what I mean? So that's all I wanted to say. Translation, you all, he said, Africans in America don't talk about it, be about it. We got you. Okay. Can you speak on that one? Yeah, see if I can you know, add, add my little two cents to that one, is uh, when you say kujichagulia, the, the definition we are taught kind of di directly translates into choosing, choice. Mm. How to choose. Kujichagulia, mm. nachagua, I am choosing. Mm. But then when it comes to self-determination, those are, it, it doesn't mean the same thing. It's a different concept. Because when you're talking about self-determination, uh, I'm saying it means, well, I mean, there's an element of choice, but it's giving you the illusion of an element of choice. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because you're, it's like you're trying to choose and define yourself for however you see fit, how you name yourself, mm -hmm. how you create for yourself, mm -hmm. how you speak for yourself. So you've been given that illusion of choice. Mm. that you know you can pick something like how you would from a salad bar mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then when it comes to you know the real definition of what that self-determination is is you know we've been basically defined who we are by you know forces that are not within ourselves so that really creates a, a bit of a contradiction yes. yeah so kujichagulia actually means choosing for yourself mm -hmm. yeah yeah, well, that one is heavy, and that opens up a topic and a conspiracy against humanity that's a little too deep to give a little bit of a little of one episode to, because this notion of people that have been colonized, that have been conquered, being encouraged to put so much value on the choice you make, the choice you make as an individual is really just another trap, another sabotage. Because you only tell a person your choice is so important after I've already controlled you through your language, I've already educated you, I've already been the one to set the context for how you understand life, but now your choice is important. Don't let anybody encroach on your choice or take your ability to choose away. Now that I know you will only choose what I've laid out for you. So, that's very interesting and it's interesting even that it's presented to us as self-determination rather than understanding the notion of choice. 
Yeah, that it was almost like mind blowing to hear that because there is a controversy behind uh, the made up holiday anyway. Um, and to say that now you have this illusion of choice, that's another idea that we really have to think deep and hard about because the notion of this Kwanzaa celebration, it's giving us like an illusion that you're doing something spiritual, you're doing something for your ancestors, you're doing something for your society or community, but you're taking like this salad bar approach and you're taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, something over here, something borrowed from over there, and you put it all together, you know, for this emotional celebration to feel good but is that really the goal is that what we're really striving to do and so those are the questions that we have to be honest and think about like we're not trying to say like don't celebrate kwanzaa but if you really want to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and even the the notion of leaving the colonial holidays to do something for your ancestors and now you're going to go to something that's like an illusion you know it, it's like we would do ourselves a better service to study and investigate what we're doing before we dive right into it the next principle is ujima ujima and is told to us as collective is how that u is translated now that i'm understanding it and ujima collective work or responsibility yes this is this is a word that is not as commonly used as the next one uh, ujima but it, it is um grammatically correct mm -hmm. uh so it does exist uh, i don't know if uh hatani menkesa wants to add anything further to that uh, do, uh, do yes uh, the word exists but i can tell you this for a fact is i have never used it in any sort of sentence <laughs> in my 12 years of study in swahili <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me, me neither me neither it, it does yeah. exist but uh me neither yeah well, in the in the um ethnic groups of kenya in the culture growing up there how is the principle of responsibility seen? How is that virtue seen or understood or educated to children? Uh, if I can add on to that, um, that principle would be more or less covered under the concept of duty. Mm. And the duty is actually very, it, it's, it's really drilled in us through example and also through discipline. Mm -hmm. Discipline meaning if you stray from one uh, one course of action, you're, you're realigned uh -huh. uh, verbally and physically, mm -hmm. just to get you <laughs> back on the path of duty. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that concept would be covered off in, uh, in duty. But then I can see like in, uh, in the Kwanzaa, it's, they define it as collective work and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So you cover duty, and of course, duty also covers you know what what sector of the society you're you're responsible for, both mm -hmm. as a child who is uh, you know below a certain age and above a certain age. So I would say it's more like uh, duty and responsibility in there, because the collective work is is more or less covered off between the both of those. So everybody knows what they're supposed to do. They know what how they're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. and uh, whether they need to do it in a timely fashion. Hmm. 
duty in the Kenyan uh, social context will have different meanings for the different social groups. So, for example, for the children who are raised by their parents and growing up in the, in the, in the family uh, setting, in the household setting, um, household as we would call it in, in, in colonial terms, yes. duty will have a, a different meaning to the duty of, say, what the father or the mother would have. More so in the more rural settings, in, in, in the cities, uh, like in Nairobi and, and the major conglomerate cities, that has kind of been eroded and, you know, we tend to follow more the templates of what we see in the TV and things like that. But when you, uh, duty and the responsibilities that one has, depending on where you are in, in terms of age, uh, will have different connotations and meanings to, to perhaps duty as, or responsibility as we, you might see it in the West. Mm -hmm. and, and even more importantly, if I can add on to that, it may seem very obvious coming from a traditional and indigenous setting, but then there are also duties and responsibilities related to genders. The different genders have their different roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, it seemed a bit obvious, but uh, nowadays in these modern times, it's, it's not as obvious. So it really has to be uh, stated. Yes. Yeah. yeah, dwell for that, but that will open up a whole nother episode or series of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's ready to go there. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, <laughs> the next, uh, the next principle for the fourth day of Kwanzaa is ujama, ujama, which is translated to collective economics. <laughs> Not about how are we in 2024 going to escape from slavery to the north, but how are we going to get back to our style of liberation? Our generation's liberation is Black Wall Street. That's our liberation. That's our next north star. We got Chinatown, right, where we can go and experience Chinese culture and they own their own banks. They own their own laundromats, their own stores. We can go to Little Village where we can experience Latino culture. They own their own things. We can go to the Gold Coast. We know what they own. We be all through downtown, okay? So where's the part of town where we own everything? Where's our bookstores, our grocery stores, our laundromats, our banks, our airlines, our airplanes and jets flying through the sky? It's that time, y'all. So I ask, how we gonna get there? How we gonna get there? How we gonna get there? Get there, wait and see. We gotta keep on going. Keep that candle burning inside. We've got our freedom, our freedom, glory be. Yo, cause we've been traveling for so long, trying to get away from depression, oppression, and all these systematic way wrongs. Mama made her be strong. Yeah. <laughs> 
homies brutality. We gotta keep on going. Keep that candle burning inside. We've got our freedom, our freedom, glory be. So when it comes to ujama, is also another word that uh, is not commonly used. But then I can see that it has been co-opted to bring in uh, a different concept with related to things related to economics. Whenever you're talking about economics, uh, you know, there's basically, you know, money, the, the financial part that is put in. But then you see that, you know, creates a slight bit of a contradiction towards the other policies uh, or what you might call principles because mm -hmm. even when it comes to, you know, commercial activities, you know, there are some that are related to not being very enjoyable on those that it's being inflicted upon. And uh, that's something that we really need to be very careful about that whatever commercial activities that we are being involved in don't involve the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. to execute. Swahili was, you know, they call it a lingua franca or, you know, the language of the market. You know, it's interesting that they immediately linked Ujamaa with collective economics because, like, for me, uh, as a speaker of the language, when, when we talk about Ujamaa, and I'm sure it's the same for Hatani Menka said, uh, we don't necessarily link it immediately to any kind of economic or market aspects of it. We, you know, for me, it just uh, engenders a, a sense of maybe unity, you know, collective spirit. Mm. But um, it's interesting that they, you know, they, they saw it fits to add the economics to the end of the collective. Because if you came up to, if you, if you came to Kenya and just said Ujama, we wouldn't necessarily think of it in terms of those market terms of uh, economics. We just think of it as unity or, you know, doing things together as a community, collectively, yes. Okay. So the difference between Umoja and Ujama would be oneness versus doing things uh, in collective, in the collective, collectively. So, yeah. So Ujama for me would be, it, it, uh, it, it evokes more of a sense of brotherhood. You know, mm. Jama, there's, there's a root word there, Jama, so there's brotherhood. Umoja is more like uh, unitary in terms of the connotations of the word, but Ujama has that sense of brotherhood or sisterhood, and I Umoja see. is just the unifying aspect of it. I see, I see. Because even when we are talking to people, sometimes they can say, hey, those Jamas, like mm. those brothers, those are our people in there. Uh -huh. The economics part doesn't come in. Mm -hmm. So even mm -hmm. some, sometimes you can say, hey, I met one Jamaa over there and uh, we did this, that and the other. So it would be linked to, you know, how and Suwaji had said it, like brotherhood. Yes. Yes, Jez Ripter was whispering over here that Menkaseb is really baiting us to get into big conversations, but we're going to try to stay disciplined. I'm shaking under the table um, because, yeah, we could say a lot about, you know, as you all know, even seeing the big cities like Nairobi and how things are changing there and being eroded there, you can only imagine those born into the marketplace of America. The world is just a marketplace. And when the world is just a marketplace, you really don't see, you really don't understand what's marketplace, what's not marketplace, is all you know. So somehow brotherhood became economics economics yeah. so the fifth the fifth, the fifth principle 
for the fifth day of Kwanzaa is Nia. Nia. A lot of people have taken that name. Uh, uh, you hear that one more often, and it's translated here as purpose. Nia. 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 It is my purpose for being here. The purpose, our purpose is to return us to our traditional greatness, our sovereign, independent, African uh, uh, independence, excuse me, our, our, our African sovereignty, because don't, none of this don't uh, mean anything if uh if our purpose our nia is not to become a whole people again you know what i'm saying if we want to be able to be black if you will or african within the construct of european domination is still uh counterproductive and it's not what our ancestors called for those that was taken through the door no return they wanted to return to their sovereign communities you know what i'm saying and be the africans that they were it does exist uh, yes it does mean purpose uh, you would come more, come um, across it more in terms of, uh, like for me personally speaking, uh, for me, you hear the term more used by the politicians when they're talking about what their goals are and what they want to achieve. Nia yetu, uh, yetu meaning our goal, our purpose. Nia yetu ni even naive. So you'd say whatever their purpose is. So nia, um, so the interesting thing about Nia is it does exist, but when you go to say Tanzania or the coastal regions of Kenya, they are they they are usually very they, they look up on us people who grew up in the cities because they have something that they they call Swahili Sanifu. <laughs> Swahili Sanifu meaning you know the more grammatically correct Swahili, okay, which is uh, spoken across uh, the coastal regions. Yeah. You know? Whereas uh, for us who grew up more in the cities we tend to have more of a creolized or, or patwarized version of Swahili, which is interspersed with like, like um, you know, the slang terms. So, you know, mm -hmm. we'll speak the Swahili mixed with a little bit of English, maybe mixed with a little bit of terms, and it's always evolving. So you know, what we talk about in terms of really not calling it a, a language, but a dialect. Um, yeah. So Nia is a term that you would more commonly hear in maybe in the coastal regions where they are more grammatically sound in terms of the origins of um, the Swahili. The Swahili yes, dialect. Yes, it does exist. The, the Swahili dialect, yes. <laughs> but I'll, I'll pass it over to Hattani Menkasabi, who has anything to add to that. Yeah, even when you you see with the word Nia, if I ever encounter somebody who uses that word in the sentence, I know I really have to bring forth all my... Swahili vocabulary knowledge that is locked into the back of my head that uh -huh. I formalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even like when I'm, you know, speaking to my Tanzanian counterparts, I really have to make sure that it's Shakespearean, if I can put it that way. <laughs> and so then you have Kuumba, uh, our creativity. How do we be creative in bringing this into fruition? You know what I'm saying? And finding new ways to reach people, new ways to do things. Kuumba, yes, it's the, the way they said it there with regards to being creative and uh, expressing your creativity. But um, there's always a purpose behind the creativity of which you're expressing. And, uh, you know, you link that to the other principles. They should, they should, in theory, be linking towards creativity towards that. Creativity towards brotherhood. Creativity towards unity. 
uh-huh. but, but not creativity towards building what you, they might call things of beauty that will, you know, excite the emotions if I can put it that way. Uh-huh. So, so therein again comes a little bit of the controversy, yes. whereby um, it's leading towards the creativity, towards things that excite you emotionally. Right. Kuhumba, for us, like uh, Hatani said, you wouldn't really have that aspect of uh, creativity for creativity's sake. Um, mm-hmm. Because for us, that would be a form of redundancy, you know, uh, especially mm-hmm. in um, the social kind of uh, climates in which we grew up in. You know, you, you wouldn't go to the farm and find somebody with an easel and, and, and par- right. you know, painting the landscape. You know, you'd be more concerned with harvesting or planting or whatever needs to be done for the practical purposes of survival and such like. It wasn't until I really started traveling outside of America and traveling into other cultures, getting to live with people living in their culture that I realized that things like art and music don't Don't exist exist. for their own sake in other places. They're only expressions of the actual valuable things you have in a culture. So music will be a big expression of spirituality and, you know, art will be an expression of maybe spirituality or some, some other aspects of what the people are working towards, but they don't just happen for their own sake. But in the marketplace, again, so much is done for its own sake because it's a commodity. And so now we really look at them totally different in America than other people, you know, uh, that just have cultural expressions through those things. And it's really interesting because Black America specifically is the one that's even associated with a lot of the creative art forms. And we even find pride in the fact that we brought a lot of creative art forms, but we don't see that we brought them for their own sake. Because whatever culture was behind it in our ancestry is no longer there. And so we only have what we've been, the the values or the lack of values in our colonization and the monuments and the symbols of our colonization to express for expression's sake rather than trying to express a connection to a higher power or trying to express a connection to our cultural history or trying to express you know a connection to our ancestry and all of that which you see in every other culture around the world when they're using music and they're using art even when you look at kumba and creativity you know i can't really talk without speaking about the work that we do with this culture with this music and the, the control of our culture by our enemies right now and one of the main aspects of the people's culture is their music. And right now, the majority of the music that's being force-fed to the masses of our people is destructive, it's dangerous, and it's telling us to actually kill each other. Mm. Calling us, dropping in bombs on us, disrespecting our women. And if we don't get control of that, you know, it's just crazy. Right, right now, it's 2024. And so far, every year this decade, well, we've been averaging over 10,000 homicides of African people in the U.S. And your music is saying, kill each other. The principle of the seventh day is is um, imani, imani, and it is translated to us as faith. Yes, so imani is uh, is uh, fairly commonly used. Uh, it, it it does mean faith. Um, the interesting thing with um, imani, like uh, from a personal perspective, it's it's a term that 
usually you hear if you you know if you're on the radio if you happen to be walking by a tv and there's a preacher who is uh preaching in in swahili faith imani imani <laughs> but when i think about it even with my own um uh, tribal or indigenous language of ekewusi uh imani is a word that we do use but because it has been kind of borrowed and taken from the Swahili or the Bantu side of things, we actually have the old Ekegusi, which is not uh, influenced by Swahili. Um, and then it kind of evolved. So we have a new, fo a newer form of Ekegusi, which is involved, uh, which which is heavily influenced by uh, Swahili. And so mm -hmm. the concept is actually introduced in the newer form. So my great grandparents would have spoken the older Ekegusi, which is truer to the roots of uh, Bantu. Uh -huh. the Bantu language without the Arab influence and the concept of faith in my own indigenous uh, tribal language doesn't exist but normally well, when you say something like Imani and uh, it's also tied to a word called Amini mm. so Amini also you know, carries the same concept of you know, belief and just by saying that uh, in the in the modern context, especially the younger folk, uh, you will expect to hear that from you know preachers and politicians and things like that. But then now the the belief in politicians and the belief in um, in clergy people, their credibility has really taken a big hit, especially in these tough economic times. Mm in that, uh, you know, our parents were in it, you know, we saw how it turned out for them. We are seeing how it's turning out for us and for our children. So normally anybody who comes and says, Amini, he, we are like, hey, 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 this one is trying to pull a fast one on us. <laughs> so we have to really, that is somebody we have to keep an eye on. Uh -huh. Somebody who comes with that um, as a concept of, yeah, he's trying to pull a fast one. What so normally they try. A con. I, I just yeah. wanted to repeat it. Yeah, because when I remember when I was very young, uh, they had tagged everything in the year 2000. By the year 2000, there will be water for all. Mm. By the year 2000, there will be ex electricity for all. There will be free health care. Then they tagged the one Amini. We were like, yes, we believe. Mm. Uh, the year 2000 came and went, you know, now we are, you know, 20, 20 plus years after that. And, you know, those who maintained the Amini, the belief, the faith, I'm sure by now it's shaken a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for the younger folk, uh, they, they, they are not tending to fall into that, uh, you know, into that cycle that, that we all bought into when we were much, much younger back, you know, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, so that word is normally taken as a red flag, if I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah this is also interesting and almost getting a cultural context of some of these concepts almost makes you wonder if when Kwanzaa started, it was just, you know, because it was members of the Black nationalistic movement mm -hmm. trying to do something to bring Black people together. Sure. And even... Karengo, who started it, even admitted that the only reason he went to Africa is because at that time, people, black people 
wanted to hear more about what was coming from Africa. They weren't really that interested in hearing what was coming from Black America. And so he used it for that reason. It wasn't even that much of an interest for him to really get back to Africa and its, and its culture. And that makes it, hearing this the deeper understanding from the cultural context makes me almost wonder, like, did he just go into a Swahili dictionary, dictionary. and choose these with no cultural context, with no conversation with actual people that speak the language, and then make it now crafted or catered to the lifestyle that we have here? But on the last thing, as far as Swahili goes, um, is the greeting of Habarigani, which is the other thing that you hear at every Kwanzaa event to start every Kwanzaa presentation. Is that a greeting that uh, exists in the language there by those who speak it? And what, what is the concept of that greeting, Habarigani? Uh, people back in the day used to do that. The older folk would, would greet you Habarigani, Mambo Namnagadi. It's always related to what's what's happening, you know, what, what's the news, what is happening. Because the dynamicism of life in, uh, in the continent is uh, quite something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always tell my children, by the time the day is done, you've been presented a lot of interesting challenges throughout your day that you have had to really apply yourself to be able to overcome. So every day you wake up knowing that by the evening <laughs> you'll have gone through some interesting but unique challenges, unique to you. And, you know, by somebody asking you, Habarigani, you know, they're not asking, how are you? You know, they're yeah. asking, what has gone down? You know, uh -huh. and, and that way, because we normally learn from each other, mm -hmm. because somebody can say, hey, if you go this road, <laughs> these are the challenges you'll find. <laughs> Try uh -huh. going this way instead. Mm -hmm. And then you know you go forth with your day we are really having this conversation and doing this investigation because even for the communities here in chicago in the west that have gained some momentum with some events and some cultural practice i put that in quotes to bring people out every year um, we're not trying to do this investigation to stop that or down that or throw shade on that or to even uh, um, discourage people from finding things to get them to look to Africa, to look to their ancestry, to look to their own culture. But if it's something that we're doing and our communities are doing, we have to investigate it. We have to make sure we can, we have the ability to refine it. We have the ability to get to the, to the, origins of things and see you know is it help what part of it is helping us what part of it is hurting us what part of it have we evolved out of what part of it you know can be um uh evolved to better consider what our communities need now um and so this conversation was really important to me and i said that before saying that with this conversation, like I said, you can see just how disconnected each of the principles are presented, disconnected from their cultural context, context from the cultures that speak the languages, and disconnected from each other, 
but there's a lot of i mean there's a lot of just interesting things about kwanzaa that make you question and i tread towards this next topic lightly one because just is sitting next to me and i don't want to catch any elbows or uh any hands around my neck but two because you know in the west you almost have this idea because of racism because of colonialism you have this notion of like you you can't speak out against anything that blacks are trying to do that africans are trying to do don't be negative don't be negative but then we don't refine anything like that and we don't grow anything like that the truth is a lot of people have a hard time with kwanzaa because the founder of kwanzaa's roots are often questioned now that could be uh you know, for many reasons. We know that propaganda tends to run America. Anything that's potentially going to be positive for black people, the propaganda machine can ruin before it really gets started. But we also know that um, Karenga was a part of the black nationalist movement as stated, and he was even a part of the black nationalist group that was kind of, um, known for being more violent, more uh, aggressive, more serious, and even was at odds with uh, the Black Panther Party because they wouldn't take that type of stance. And even though it's interesting to hear that because the Black Panther Party is the one that's known for talking about Blacks arming themselves, standing up for themselves, but their main programs were really about, you know, empowering the community, feeding the community, educating the community, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's revolutionary nationalists, Black Panthers, cultural nationalists, us, and just different ideas on how to handle and deal with the struggle. And so um, a lot of it became some jealousy came in there and just some unfortunate uh, fighting. And then also you got to give credit where credit's due with the role of COINTELPRO, you know, with poison pen letters and cartoons being made and pushed by the FBI to foster this fratricide that was taking place. <coughs> Which we understand as we do more study and learning about it, that it didn't last too, too long. However, it was very impactful, but again, because you, you, know, you lose Bunchy and John. Karenga is known to have a criminal record of uh, threatening and assaulting women. But that's just one part of his history. Many people have had, you know, a criminal history or a history of bad behavior to make a turnaround and do great things for their people that we can't judge anybody by one thing they do or a few things they do and then overlook everything else they were trying to do in this battle of forces of good and evil that exists in each of us. But he's also known or there's been claims that he had ties with the FBI and even in the feud between the Black Panther Party and the Black Nationalist Party, he was kind of working with FBI to um, sabotage the Black Panthers and some of the things that they were doing. So there's these kind of questions about him and therefore about what he was bringing. And when you look at something like Kwanzaa, not only is there's questions about why reach all the way to East Africa for language, but 
even if you're going to reach to East Africa for a language, why reach for Swahili instead of some of many languages you have there? But we can't really put that on Karanga because even the politicians and the leaders in East Africa reach for Swahili over the other ones. Um, can we now come back to that conversation? Menkaseb, Menkaseb was really talking about that earlier, why Swahili was really being pushed to the people over there as becoming the national language over other options. Yeah, well, <clears throat> because even, you know, within even our country on its own, you know, we have, you know, issues related to tribes. Um, prior to independence, um, you can say that the tribes were united towards a common front of getting rid of the face of colonization in its more obvious form before switching over to its more hidden form of neo-colonialism. Mm -hmm. So with that said, the, the Kiswahili came to us as not being from one of what they call the major tribes. So they told us that that made it a bit more palatable with regards to having it uh, accepted by others without too much resistance. So that's the, the official reason that we were given as to why that uh, Swahili was chosen. But then also they said that we also need a unified language that was not English mm -hmm. within within the country. Yeah, so that's the, the official reason that they, they gave us. It's still seen by many politicians as uh, a language of unity and a unifying language. You know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, the politician who was, uh, you know, is pretty famous as a populist politician called Julius Malema in, in um, South Africa was calling for Swahili to be the national language of the, you know, the continental language of Africa. Yes. Um, so even to this day, the reasons that were given that uh, Hatani Mankasab has outlined are still being used today in terms of, uh, for the political uh, impetus and momentum that it would give populists such as uh, Malema as a, a language of unif unity and a unifying language. Yeah, which is where I wanted to come next because this episode was important for me. This conversation was important for me because as a African born in America, born from the consequences of the triangle trade, uh, you can see time and time again where movements start in the West, not only in America and other places around the West, of African communities trying to recover and being rerouted right back towards uh, a consequence of colonization and a consequence of enslavement. You had a big movement here that many of us know about where Black people started to stand up, really be keen on being proud of being Black and all of that, and it happened under Islam. And it happened under the Black Muslim movement and Malcolm X and um, uh, Elijah Muhammad and all of that. And then, you know, you, you see those charismatic people, you hear those speeches, you get very proud about that. And then you look further in the history books and you see, wait a second, the Arabic countries did slave, tra slave trading before the English did, before the European did. And they even created the routes that the European then came and utilized to take people out of the continent. 
So why will that be a better place for us to go? Um, and it seems like, again, with Swahili, it just becomes that kind of trap. Because instead of looking for a language that's fully indigenous to the continent, represents the continent's heritage, the continent's ancestry, we go towards the one that has influence from other colonizers, Arabic in invaders, Portuguese. I think it has some Portuguese words in it now. And so it just almost seems, and then nowadays you even hear these activists saying, well, let's make it the, the language for one Africa. Why would we choose one that's so influenced by invaders to be the one for all of Africa? Those are the red flags that we have to be aware of and have to be thinking about. No matter how good the holiday make us feel, no matter how we are so deprived of true culture, true unity, true purpose, all of those things that the African-American community is very thirsty for. So we're grateful for someone coming with an idea. But if we don't investigate those ideas to their full extent, we will, as Hatania said, end up right back in the same place we were had we not been shouting, uh, yes, go for it, go for it. I can't remember the word, Mika, Mika said that you mentioned that um, everyone is shouting the same chant at the beginning because it feels good. It feels like it's doing what we've been looking for. But 10, 20, 30, 50 years later, you're like, oh, wow, we're, we're right back here again. Mm -hmm. And that's the mistake that we don't want to leave for our children, leave for our grandchildren. It's something that if we have the opportunity to make an adjustment at this point in time and space, we should be doing that because we come from a culture, we come from a history that's very rich, that's very nurturing, that has all the principles that we're looking for, but we don't have to water it down or cherry pick uh, or even as Hatania is saying, you're taking principles that don't really even come together or fit together. You just pick some randomly and, and then came up with something for your perhaps political agenda. Was this by mistake or was this by design? Who were the influencers of this? How did this truly come about? What should we be doing? We need to always, a uh, third thing that we need to always do is look to Africa for answers to those things that's uh, perplexing us today. The answers are already in Africa. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? And that gives us a stream and uh, to, to, to bathe in, if you will, to nourish ourselves and a springboard to spring from. And so we don't have to recreate uh, the wheel. You know what I'm saying? It's already there. Yes, Mankasim. Yes, yeah. you know, it always comes down to finding out that, uh, you know, some of these colonizers know us better than we know ourselves. Mm. And after gathering all that body of knowledge through their missionaries and through, you know, the investigators that they sent who documented our way of life, our languages, our unifying forces, you know, they came up and they sat down and really logically went through what they found and they figured out, figured us out, if I can say, and so that um, for us to be keep on doing what we are supposed to be doing with regards to us not being able to maintain our stability is by them leading us away from actually who we really are. Mm -hmm. 
by saying here this is the language that you all need to be talking mm -hmm. but then they cannot give it to us directly they have to give mm. it through proxies who will make it more acceptable to us mm. and uh, these proxies who are being given this language to give us you know they look like us they talk like us they eat what we eat you know they get certain benefits for doing that way and working on behalf of the colonizer as a proxy so even for for us on the receiving end me being on that other side I actually thought it's an amazing idea, you know. We have mm. a unifying language. The Swahili, which they vaguely told us where it came from, became very acceptable also to me, to the extent whereby, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed studying it and learning it, especially towards the, um, you know, when I was finishing my secondary school. You know, to the extent where I even scored higher marks in Swahili than in English in, mm -hmm. uh, in my final grades in, uh, in O-level. So that was uh, something I was very proud of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then as, as time went on, as you know, they say the older you are, you're supposed to at least be learning new things. And uh, with this new information that has been coming in, you know, I really find out how insidious the system is and how it can actually make you work against yourself with your own willingness and your own energies. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, learning where origins and you know, entomology and all that interesting thing, knowing where and what motives and agendas people had bring this to us, you know, really lets me know how well I've been played. <laughs> <laughs> and then hopefully, you know, teach that to my children. Here is the game that is being played. Yeah, make sure you can see it before it gets to you and make uh, adjustments. And which yeah. is really good because we're actually making adjustments as we speak. So it's it's really fantastic. Yeah. So there's always totally, you know, totally yeah. It always there's always positivity that comes out after you know getting played. So yeah. <laughs> it's something that uh, that is really exciting, knowing all these amazing things we are learning, and also through your podcast. Like I said, we, this is not to slander Kwanzaa. This is not to slander Swahili. This is just to investigate what we are using now, what we are getting behind, and make sure there's not something better that we could be. Make sure there's not something that could serve our recovery, our mental health, our you know uh, empowerment better. Um, but before we get to maybe some of the things that could serve better, because we don't want to point at problems without offering alternatives. Um, I want to make one other point about Kwanzaa that really is talking just to what Menkaseb was saying, where you find out you've been duped, you find out really, am I being led to give my efforts into my own sabotage? And that's the notion of the, I think in, the word that's given to us in Kwanzaa is the Kanira. Mm. Oh. Is that what it's called? Yes. The uh, seven candles. The the candle holder, and it has slots for seven candles. One in the middle that's that's uh, taller than the others, but the candles are red, black, and green. And this is another symbol of Kwanzaa. Um, but for me. Even since I was young enough, I saw it and I was just like, oh, they just co copied uh, Hanukkah, right? They just copied Hanukkah because that's the only other place I see a candle holder with seven candles. It happens at the same time 
around the same time, except those candles are all white that they burn. But now the ones for Kwanzaa are red, black, and green. First, before I get into that, do you all have that cultural object back home that you know about? Is there a seven candle candle holder that is utilized in ceremonies? Um, and if so, are you burning black, red, and green candles? <laughs> Don't laugh, man, because there's an obvious question. Um, no, re not really laughing at the question because it, it's not something that uh, I'm, I'm familiar with in any way, shape, or form. Maybe Hatini Menkaseb is. Um, so, in terms of the burning of candles, no, not really. Uh, the colors that you mentioned, maybe we can go into that a bit further on. Yes, they would be very familiar, but maybe Hatini Menkaseb might have, uh, might know more than I do about um, those uh, candles. Oh, uh, do I, do I. The only time we ever used candles was uh, at night when the lights went off. And we were like, oh my goodness, we're in darkness. <laughs> we have the then we start frantically looking for candles. <laughs> People can even remember where they were. Uh -huh. Yeah, so we, so, so, yeah, so we ended up using a torch. But other than that, the only thing we used candles for was really when there was a power blackout. And you know that that that's about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, maybe I can add uh, something that just uh, came to me. Um, so yeah, we we wouldn't really use candles. Uh, it's something that we have imported from um, you know uh, that side of the world. But in my specific uh, indigenous tribe of Ekegusi, we were more known as uh, the craftsmen um, of this part of the world. So the, the interesting tale goes that. Um, we, we used to fashion light from something that is similar or akin to what you would call a wicker or a wick, mm -hmm. which would be a big, um, like a wooden stick or pole that would be fashioned with a burnable material. I'm not really sure what the material was, but it was kind of encased in cloth. Okay. And, uh, the, the legend or the, the, the myth or the folklore goes that uh, when the colonizer came and they saw that our tribesmen were good with this uh, light burning thing that looked like a wick that used to burn uh, constantly for hours. It could burn for like a, a day or two. Mm. Uh, the story goes that uh, the colonizer, the white man came and said, witchcraft is this? Uh, mm. And it's giving us the term witchcraft. But then, wow. of course, we know that there, <laughs> there, are other, there are other sources for the term witchcraft. <laughs> uh -huh. But yes, so I'll, I'll, my indigenous tribe was specifically known for fashioning something that was similar or akin to a wicker or a wick that would burn or give light for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, dua for that, thank you for that. Because I bring that up because when really now investigating Kwanzaa and its effects on our communities here in the West, that's the most concerning part for me. And now after having got into Kepta uh, organization, um, coming from indigenous Africa, coming from the temple culture, existing temple cultures of Africa, getting to now learn some of the education inside of the temples and getting to be present for some ceremonies in some of the temples that are still carrying on the tradition of indigenous Africa. 
burning red and black candles has a specific meaning and you are you are having a technical effect on energy when you do so and in temple culture burning black and red candles is only for trying to call or absorb energies that are negative or violent but if you're going to call them you better know where you are what you're saying to them where you're going to direct them usually that's only done in a temple if you call in them kind of to stop disturbing a person and then you have something to make sure you have a technical ceremony to make sure that you're directing them away from that person and not to attach themselves to someone else so now if you have the black community of america one whose ancestors have already been through enslavement already been through you know the torture that happened on the plantations already been through those things accruing and accumulating negative and violent energies now living on the streets of you know big cities in in america in chicago we have a handful of murders every weekend you have a community in that kind of violent energy already now to go out every winter and then light red and black candles calling those negative energies forth and the whole community gets around that ceremony with no knowledge of how to direct those negative energies out it's just like hey let's all come together and let's share our negative and violent energies or let's give a party to the negative and violent energies that are that have been riding us this year so that maybe they can ride us even better this next year that's really the harmful thing for me and that's even where it's almost like for those who know it's almost like embarrassing for blacks in america to follow i'll just say to copy hanukkah but then to add this part in it at least in hanukkah they burn in white candles all you're doing is calling forth pure energies with that but now you do it and you call forth negative and violent energies to a community that's probably the one that least needs those kind of energies to be called if you're not cleansing them from them so this is really why i felt the pressure even if some people are going to take this conversation the wrong way and like we being negative to something that people are trying to do positively no because the fact is that spirituality and the invisible is a technical science and when you know how to move energy and that science is just about moving energy the same way i can go and turn the light switch on and the lights come on is the same way you do some things to stimulate something and you get you know something to come from that and the invisible and black and red candles just have that so whether we like it or not whether we think it 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 connects to our national flag or not to burn those and and influence that energy that way is harmful and detriment, detrimental to our community so this is definitely one of the things that now our communities need to look to evolve out of so do all for that and i know because i know that the kenyan flag also has these same colors um uh do either one of you want to speak to what the symbolism is for those colors in that flag? 
You know, that flag is quite interesting because, you know, we've made clothes out of it. You know, we have colors. You know, I have my shirt with my, uh, my emblems there, expressing my patriotism and nationalism with that. And you know, even just, you know, cursory look at the knowledge of which we were taught of its origins. We were told that, you know, red is the blood we shed fighting for independence. Black is the color of the people. And then, uh, you know, green is our agricultural resources. And then there are two lines, you know, white lines separating the three colors in the flag, which stands for peace and unity. Mm. And so, you know, that really helped galvanize, you know, my emotions into the attachment with that flag. Mm -hmm. But then interestingly enough, you know, it's not only Kenya that has it. I think uh, Libya has it also. You know, Southern Sudan has it. There are a couple of more countries that have those, those mm -hmm. colors in there. And then also it was picked up as part of the Pan-African flag. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen it also. People, you know, using it here in the States. Mm -hmm. Without yeah. knowing what kind of energies those colors are supposed to be attracting. Right. But now knowing what those colors are attracting, I, there we go again, man. I've been played. Not <laughs> 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 only have I been played proper, is that I've been played to the extent that it's in me to accept mm -hmm. being played. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is, uh, that is even a very controversial subject, even if you explain it to people who, you know, express themselves using those flags. Yes. In that, you know, they say they revert to faith and belief and say, yeah. no, that is a lie. I don't believe that is true. You know? <laughs> even though they're expressed for the words. But, you know, with everything else, you know, it shows us how insidious the colonizer is. Mm -hmm. It's trying to show us that, you know, this is what you should be doing and using proxies to do that. So, but, you know, we live and learn and uh, we make adjustments. Yes. And this is going to be an interesting part of our history as to how well we were played and how we got out of it. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. to our, to our and, and the interesting thing, just to add a little bit uh, onto that is... Uh, right in the middle of those colors and those um just as hatani mankasep was explaining especially when we are younger those the, the reasons for the flag are kind of drummed into us you know mm -hmm. right for the blood we spilt it almost becomes a mantra mm. you know uh green for the for the beauty beauty of our land black for the color of our skin but right in the middle of that we have the spear and shield mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. make of that what you will and the connotations with uh, with that I think they say that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they uh, tell us in school, especially when we're young, that that signified the fight for independence. But having uh, heard what, you know, the, the explanations of the, the energies of the colors, you know, maybe that invokes other things as well. Oh, yeah, because even when it brings, you know, when you say red is, you know, the, the fight for independence and also, you know, including what you've said with the shield and, and the spears. You know, we're like, hey, you know, my ancestors were there with the Maumau, I'm there. I'm like, yes, that flag really represents who I, I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, not knowing that, you know, what kind of energies I'm attracting when I'm walking around with those colors. And I'm sure, you know, the, you know, the insidious colonizer is very happy seeing mm -hmm. us walking around with those colors. And he could be even promoting them. as in, yes, yes, those colors are the best. They really symbolize you know, what you have done and what you have sacrificed. And then I'll, I'll be there saying, yes, that is very true. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, part, of, part of being played is, yeah. is accepting you're being played. 
yes and 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 wholeheartedly embodying that being played yes but when we find out we've been played it's like you must make an adjustment you must do something different you can't just continue on and just say well this is just the way society is or this is the way that it this may be the origins of it but now we're going to change it to make it mean something else and that's what we see so many times because people are so emotionally driven they will continue to do the same thing over and over again we call that animalistic memory it's like you find out the truth about something but instead of changing you just want to change the definition for example like i stopped celebrating colonial holidays over a decade ago when I started finding out the origins of it, when I found out the true history and the meaning of it, when I understood what Thanksgiving represents and the millions upon millions of Native American people that were slaughtered, had their heads chopped off, and then their head is used as a football to play around as sport. Mm -hmm. And this is now what we celebrate for Thanksgiving. It's like, how, how can you eat a meal comfortably with that body of knowledge that you now have surely you can enjoy being around your family and all these things but in the back of your mind if you know that history you have to do something different and you tell people that history and it's like well it doesn't mean that anymore now this is a holiday for getting together and this that, and the other but the origins the roots the history is there if you don't recognize that it's almost like African-American people saying, well, surely we were enslaved, but we can celebrate it now. We can celebrate being slaves because of whatever. And it just makes absolutely no sense. And that's what we see ourselves doing time and time again. When, when you can look at the history of Valentine's Day, the history of Easter, mm-hmm. all of these things, the history is there if we want to do a true investigation. And when we find out the truth of that, are we going to change or are we just going to water it down and just say, well, now we'll give Indigenous Day the day after Thanksgiving to mm-hmm. make it better, mm-hmm. to make you feel okay about it. You can still celebrate Thanksgiving, even you know the history of it, but we'll give you something else the following day. Yeah. And it, it's just sad um, that we have become so easily played and we just comply with it and we don't make a difference. We don't take a, a stance to make a change. Well, the, the, the important thing to understand is that there's a difference between being played and being defeated. And like Menkazeb was saying, you can be played, be positive after being played to get to your recovery faster. And then to even get to moving more intelligently, moving stronger, because now you learn from being played. But you can be played and then submit to your defeat. And that's just the problem that a lot of people submit to their defeat. And it's often because they don't see that there's other options. They don't think they've been defeated first in the mind where the colonizer made them think that there's no use in even trying to recover. The world is just this way. And I'm too strong now for you to figure out some way to defeat me. That's, you know, that mental defeat that a lot of us suffer from. So I want now to bring the conversation to what some of those alternatives are, because the reality is that a lot of people, African Africans, don't know around the world, and I'm only using the word, Afri- the word African because it's the more common term, but a lot of descendants 
of our motherland don't understand is that the history of human beings living civilized on this planet goes for much longer than we're told goes for much longer than the religious propaganda informed us because the religious propaganda had to get behind some of the religious stories of telling us that uh, Adam and Eve only happened 7,000 years ago. So then everything had to be reduced to 7,000 years. But if we understand that no, in African temples, they have a history of 100,000 years. Even to think about that, it almost breaks our brain. Mm -hmm. Now to think about the fact that some of the things you think are so normal, so it must be this way, are only 2,000 years old at tops because even that 7,000 years is not what the things that we've been, the things we've been doing don't even go back 7,000 years. The things we've been doing are mainly in the 2,000 range, if not younger. And then you think that our blood our being, the earth, has a memory of us and our ancestors for 100,000 years. That means 98,000 years of civilization before the 2,000 years we know. That means, that, that means, I mean, that really means so much if you really sit and put that into context. And now you'll have to start questioning. These few hundred years we've been practicing Christmas, is it really something we can't break if I have a 98,000-year history behind the couple hundred years? Is the few hundred years I've been speaking this language, is it really something I can't overcome when my tongue has been trained to speak some languages for over 90,000 years? Then it, then it puts things into perspective. perspective. And then you're not so easily defeated because you're like, there's something that my blood is used to that maybe my brain hasn't caught up to being used to. And maybe, you know, even the, 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 the challenges that we feel, the, the pit in our stomach that we feel is because our spirit is here. Like, hey, we came so many times to face things for thousands and thousands of years. Why are you still being played like this? When it's just a 2,000 year old play, let's get back to work. So, that brings us to this notion of a language for the continent. Because if we're going to reach to Swahili, which is one of the newest languages of Africa, one that is clearly a product of Arabic influence, uh, religious conversions, um, influence for commerce, everything else. I, I find it interesting what Menkaseb was saying, or uh, excuse me, Zawaji was saying about how the tribes on the coast tried to keep it, keep a high standard, and the inland tribes only know it as the one that the that that the military speaks, mm -hmm. which is usually the case around the continent of anything coming from invaders. It will be strong on the coast, and as you get inland, they care less and less about it, and they even look look at it like, oh yeah, that's invader stuff. That's come. That's foreign stuff. If we all understand and can at least just take those lessons from the people closest to where Swahili is starting from, then we can see that that can't be the language we put on the whole continent. But if we look, instead of looking where we think we're going, the future we've been sold, and we look back to that history that has produced us all, then we can see that there's a language 
that is at the root of the languages we have around Africa. And if we reach to that one, we don't put one over the other because now we put in the roots of everyone over our differences. And that's how you unite people. And that's the language known as Medu or hieroglyphs, uh, more commonly known as uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs in today's society, but traditionally known as Medu. And interestingly enough, I've only heard people from deep in the traditions, I think some hunters talk about, no, it should be Medu. If we're gonna have an African language, that needs to be Medu. But you don't really hear that coming from politicians or professionals around Africa. You know, when I started learning the Medu through the initiation, um, it really opened my eyes quite a bit because I've been guilty of not mastering my own indigenous language, Ibikoyo, uh, because it was not taught in schools. Mm-hmm. So all the Ibikoyo I have learned is through my parents. And, you know, like my mom speaks exclusively to me in Ibikoyo and no other language. Mm. Ever since I was I was born, that's the language that we converse in me and her, and I'm eternally grateful for her to keeping up with, you know, speaking to me in that language. So I I credit everything to her and also my my father. And then also when I go to the rural area, I speak you know Ikoyo, but not as fluently as the people who are there. But then going through the Medu, I started catching, you know certain concepts that are exactly the same in the indigenous language which really you know opened up things for me knowing that you know it's a language that you know has been spoken for you know over a hundred thousand years and that's being very conservative because if we, if we push more yes. you know, people are going to get more of a shock so let's just stick to the hundred even hundred thousand is is a lot for people's colonial brain, so I don't push beyond that. I don't, I don't. Exactly. Yes, we even had an event here where it was called, uh, I think, Indigenous Inclusion or something like that. And you know, I was put in a table, you know, of people from this area, and you know, they were talking about how they can be inclusive with the indigenous people. And I brought forth the language and put one hundred thousand. No, actually, no, I did not. I said 150,000. Mm. And I could literally see brain cells exploding right there on that table. <laughs> yeah, it was a joy. I enjoyed it. Uh-huh, <laughs> because uh-huh. I could see the the, you know, <laughs> the, the lock happen. Mm-hmm. Even on, on to those who call themselves allies. So even for them, they had that problem. And mm. with the Medu language, it's really phenomenal because... It is a language that is is in nature, is rooted in nature, and uh, was given to us through divine means. And even just by uh, writing the Medu, really does something. Mm-hmm. Because I have never felt my brain get headaches uh, the way that it got. Mm. But headaches meaning, you know, it's like that muscle that has not been used. <laughs> muscle aches. Muscle aches, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that was, was, was really amazing. I really enjoy writing the Medu. I really enjoy reading the Medu. I really enjoy learning from the Medu because it really opens up me up to concepts that are related to nature. Uh, I actually feel very relaxed when, I, when I'm doing Medu and studying mm-hmm. it and writing it. And it really helps me get rooted 
as to where I am, and especially when I'm studying it with my children who catch on to it more than I do. Mm-hmm. And even just by learning that language is when I can really get to see why you know, the insidious colonizer really, really does not want us going to that and would really rather push Swahili fund, Swahili practices. Uh, there's even a university here locally that actually teaches uh, a subject. No, no, it's not even a subject. I think it's a degree in Swahili, but in a graduate level. Mm. So these are the things that they really push it. Mm-hmm. But knowing that you know we've been played, or rather I've been played. You know, I have to speak for myself. <laughs> I've been played. I acknowledge being played. <laughs> I think we can all say we on this call at least. And and knowing that okay, okay, I've been played. That's good. But now at least I have my dude now that I can use to realign me as to where I'm supposed to be going. Mm-hmm. And even by just writing the medu, as I'm walking, I, I see certain things that really let me know that, you know, here is where this certain concept came from. Mm. If you look at a leaf, you know where it came from. If you look at a feather, when you look at parts of your body, you look at your palm, you look at your leg, if you look at the concept of Afro, you can mm. see how the wood has been arranged, how it's burning. It really lets you know how well connected what you're supposed to be writing, and what you're supposed to be thinking, and what you're supposed to be seeing, how well they connect. Mm-hmm. And it is timeless. It is timeless. Yes. The people who studied it, you know, really left us with evidence out there that we can actually look to and use that as a reference as to how high they were able to achieve just by uh, the language of its own, which is Medu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I feel very fortunate to have been in this existence at this particular time to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, even just by that, I see the sacrifices of which my parents had to go through. Because mm-hmm. they went through a rough life, you know, with uh, you know the emergency period from 1952, I think, to 1961 in Kenya, which was horrifying mm-hmm. for the population. Mm-hmm. They survived through it, and here I am. <laughs> they never gave up. Right. So even, even though... They were played, yeah, you know, they did not take it as a defeatist. Yes. They acknowledge I've been played. So in their memory and in their spirit, I cannot be defeated. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so I can talk all day about Medu, but I know we are pressed for time. Yes. So I'll hand it over to my son, Zuaji, to add on. Thank you for me, I echo all the sentiments that uh, Hatini Menkaseb has talked about. I was fortunate because I, uh, you know, at the risk of making certain people blush on this call, I had two extremely good teachers for Medu in uh, Herpu and Hatini Kasabes. Um, and I think it's something, it's an anecdotal story that I even mentioned to Herpu on, on a call once that we had that Medu for me was actually quite meditative, you know, because uh, prior to the study of uh, the Medu, like even if I was working or, if, you know, on my laptop, I would always need some kind of background noise or music to keep mm. me focused because my my attention span was extremely short. Mm. You know, I think uh, they say that a chicken has an attention span of something like three seconds. I think mine was shorter. <laughs> um, but for, for for me, like just just even writing and practicing medu is is meditative for me to the point now where it's actually increased my levels of concentration. 
and also now to, to, to link it to like the indigenous uh, dialects. Um, for me, I found it extremely interesting because you, like, like Hattin Imankasab was saying, you see the links, not just in, uh, even in Swahili, you know, more from the Bantu side of things, but we have certain words that, that are similar, that are the, the same in Medu. So mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, you have uh, the word for time is the same in uh, Swahili and Medu. Mm. Uh, and even in my indigenous language, um, in Ekehusi, uh, we, we call the sun Engoro. Uh, and Engoro for us was the sun, and it was uh, extremely important, especially even in terms of the naming of the child. Whenever the child was born, we would raise the child towards the sun and call upon Engoro, mm. which was kind of invoking the powers, not just of the sun and the energies, but also the divine aspects of that. And also, Ngoro has the root word Goro, which is a word also in Medu, and which mm -hmm. is also an extremely important word. So just, Medu was important because it also gave me an appreciation of my own indigenous roots and the languages from whence forth they came. Yes. Uh, and I was also kind of uh, embarrassed. I'm not as fluent in my indigenous language as Hatani uh, Menkeseb is in his, but just the learning of the Medu forced me to learn more about my indigenous language because I could mm. see the links and the and the roots from where from where a lot of the words came from. So I'm very mm. very uh, grateful for the Medu. Mm -hmm. I do offer that, and um, we actually wanted to speak uh, lastly about a cultural holy day that comes from the culture of Medu. You know, language carrying culture. The people speaking Medu had a very important cultural observance in this time period where we find the holiday season in the West. In this same time period of the holiday season that falls in winter, in the cultural practices where Medu is coming from, on the continent of uh, Merita or Africa, right now is an important time period because as you see the image behind us, the Neter Wisser, the in the in the traditional pronunciation of Medu, you pronounce his name Wisser. The Greeks pronounced his name Osiris. The Germans pronounced his name Osar. But it was in the time when his energies die from Earth, and so they leave Earth. And interestingly enough, Zawaji was talking about this uh, wick that's burned in traditional places that still observe this cultural practice. This is the time where some form of wick or candle or torch will be put out at night once sun sets, because in the time when this divinity's energies are no longer present on earth, and this is a divinity that represents fertility, life, life on earth, the notion of, um, He's a vegetal divinity. That's why you see him with green skin. When his energies leave Earth, you also see life leaving. You also see life becoming dormant. So the trees lose their leaves, or if they're in a place where they keep their leaves, they no longer will fruit. Um, and so you see all of these aspects of nature that follow him as he leaves Earth. In that time when his energies are not present on earth, destructive energies 
tour. They go on tour around Earth because they don't have his energies to contend with. His energies of preservation and preserving life are usually there to balance out the energies of destroying life. But with his energies gone, now the energies of destruction get to tour, get to go around disturbing more people, you know, destroying more. And we can see that even in our regular life. When we seem to get more infections and become more sick and have a harder time, it's in the winter when it gets cold, right? So this is the time you put some form of fire, some torch out to show we stand with Whistler. We know his energies are gone, but we still working to preserve his light that he brings to earth. And that's done as a form of protection. Now, I bring that up just to juxtapose it in the fact that somehow Kwanzaa finds itself burning black and red candles to call negative and violent energies. And when I say negative, I don't want to, that to become something like a, a superstitious or it's religious or I need you to believe it. It's not negative because things in the existence, you're hard pressed to call them negative. Because negative for who? The existence is big. But I say negative because they're destructive. They're destructive to human life. And so to burn black and red candles and call energies of destruction and chaos and tension and violence in that time when that's their time period to rule, to go out and tour, and you don't even have the normal protections of life preservation that are around is just extremely dangerous. So this was that time period. But this time period is about to culminate in a cultural observance that happens every year right around the Gregorian date of January 5th. Um, and that will be the fasting period. And during the fasting period, it's a 10-day period where from sunrise to sunset, everyone in the culture that observes, that honors Whistler as our ancestral divinity, the divinity that started the principles and started life cycle for human beings on earth. We fast to accompany him to now leaving earth and journey into the world of the dead. And for 10 days, we will, from sunrise to sunset, we won't eat, we won't drink, we won't smoke. We won't really put anything in our mouth or uh, participate in any impure activity. We will try to keep our energies as pure as possible and keep our meditations on the principles of life, the principles of preservation of life, the principles of human civilization and refinement as we um, accompany the God Whistler or the Divinity Whistler to the world of the dead. And that 10-day fast will end with a feast that the whole community then comes to celebrate together that, okay, Whistler is now in the world of the dead where his energies are even stronger to protect us again, to join or to support our ancestral spirit in protecting the liver, living on earth. So this is a cultural observance, a cultural holy day or holy days that may seem foreign today because of the last 2,000 years, but was practiced for the 90-some thousand years before that being safe. 
So I really want to thank you guys uh, for joining us today. This was an important conversation um, for our listeners, uh, for so important for um, our communities. So I, I encourage our listeners to pass on this episode to others that need to hear it. I know it's important for us. I know I'm surprised that I got out safely after this episode and what Jizrita was, how Jizrita was looking at me. Um, but I want to thank you guys once again. It was a pleasure to have you on and give us that cultural understanding um, from our motherland. It was an honor. It was an honor to me to do our So uh, it's that mandate uh, of our ancestors, of those yet unborn, to, uh, to understand that our faith is to hold up our purpose to return us to our traditional greatness as a sovereign people. And anything shorter than that, less than that, we plan. And as John Henry Clark said, right, we are not African because we were born in Africa. We are African because Africa was born in us. Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street.